All right, thank you, Pastor Mike. We're going to be in Psalm 19. Uh, We've been praying. Let's continue to pray and ask God to apply his word to our hearts now. So, Lord, we thank you for gathering us together. We thank you for giving us your word that we hold in our hands. It's truth from you. You've declared it to us, and now um, we want to respond to your declarations, and we want to have humble hearts, and we want to see you as we should, and we want to see ourselves from your perspective as you see us. Help us to see ourselves truthfully and then responding back to you humbly. Uh, Please guide us through this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So last night, I saw many of you, and some of you saw me. Uh, Some of you I didn't come up to because it seemed like you were enjoying yourself, and I didn't want to ruin your time. But uh, we went down to the fireworks, and I was laying on the blanket next to Seth. About 9 o'clock or so, where the sun is going behind, uh, behind Harbor Island, and we just looked up in the sky. And Seth laid on my arm here next to me for just a moment. I was in father glory, if you will, at that moment, until he said, I got to scoot down. And I said, why are you scooting down? He says, your arm is too soft. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know if he knew what he was saying. He was insulting me right there. But we were looking at the stars, and they were just starting to pop out, and we We cupped our hands around our eyes to try to block out the light from the lamp posts on either side, and we counted about five or six and asking, well, is that a star? Is it a planet? And just enjoying that time together. Um, It's kind of amazing to me to think about God's creation, and specifically his creation from our reference point in the sky. Um, Earth exists as a little grain of sand, if you will, in the Milky Way. And scientists tell us that the Milky Way is 600,000 trillion miles across from one end to the other. Meaning that if you were to shine a laser at one end, it would take 100,000 years for that light to travel from one end of the Milky Way galaxy so that somebody on the other end would say, oh, I see you over there. 100,000 years. Here's this one galaxy that we live in, and it includes, we only saw maybe five stars up there, um, between 100 and 400 billion stars. And then scientists with these telescopes and Hubble technology, they're saying that we are one of approximately anywhere between 200 billion and possibly 2 trillion galaxies, containing each of them approximately 200 billion stars in them. So on space.com, their guesstimate right now with the extent that can be seen or scientifically estimated, they would say that there are roughly one septillion stars in the universe. 
And I don't know what that number is until I follow the paragraph down and it says, well, that's one with 24 zeros behind it. So we just sang, let sun and moon and all the stars in all the universe sing praises to his glorious name. And the Bible is telling us that those one septillion stars, five of which Seth and I saw last night, have a voice to them. And with their voice, they're declaring a message, a message that we need to hear about. We're studying Psalm 19, and the psalm is divided fairly neatly into three sections. Verses 1 through 6 are about how creation speaks. Verses 7 through 11 are on how God's word speaks. And then verses 12 to 14 are about our response to God. So let's look at verses 1 through 6 and just see how God's creation speaks. Look again at verse 1. You see the words that David is using. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The creation of God, specifically the heavens, which David is referring to as that stuff that I see out there, the sun, moon, and stars, the sky, is the result of God's work. Now, we see this from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. On day 2 of creation, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So follow this with me for just a little bit. There's an expanse from the waters here and the waters there. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. So what God did on day two of creation is he created space. He created distance between the waters below and the waters above. There's lots of interesting questions that are what is the water above? Well, go to day four of creation, verses 14 and following. God said, let there be lights, and where are the lights supposed to be located? In the expanse of the heavens. So I'm just going to throw a teaser out there for you. If the lights up in the sky are in the expanse and the water beneath on the earth is here, the stars are there, where's the water that's above the stars? So you've heard theories about an expanding universe, how the universe has limits. Both creationists and non-creationists talk about there possibly being an edge to the universe. And creationists are saying, God, quite possibly on day two of creation, made the expanse so great that he has water here on the earth, stars, one septillion plus of them, and then somewhere out there on the edge of the universe, God has water that's containing all of this. Just a radical thought. So day four, verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. 
And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, and it was the fourth day. So what we see from Psalm 19 in correlation with Genesis 1 is that God created all of this. God created the heavens. And in such a way, God created them so that those objects out there have a voice to them. They speak. So yesterday, again, uh, we were downtown not once but twice. Might make us crazy for being down there twice on a Saturday in Coast Guard. But the parade. And there we are sitting alongside Sheldon, I think it was, with all of the Coast Guard officers that have proceeded forward and all the personnel there and the floats are starting to come. And after the floats came this miniature parade of Corvettes. And they were styling on all fronts. Some of them were brand new, sleek lines, all of that. Some of them were a little more vintage. One Corvette came through that had doors that not opened outward, but opened upwards, kind of cool. And as you looked at those Corvettes, I thought, man, those Corvettes speak to me. <laughs> they say, come drive me. Come get me. They say, I'm fast. I'm enjoyable. They say, look at me. All right. The Corvette had a voice. Well, Psalm 19 is saying there is something that has been made much more grand than vets on Coast Guard Parade. It is the heavens that God has made. And verse 1 says that they are speaking of God's glory and of his handiwork. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The voice continues in verse 2. The Bible says, day to day pours out speech. And so you can think about this. The, the purpose here that David is writing is this is a message that continually comes forward. It pours out speech like a river that keeps going and going and going or a spring that keeps gurgling up water and water. Day to day never ends. Creation is speaking regularly. In verse 3, first part of verse 4, David tells us that this is an unusual message. You can see in verse 3, he says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The NIV helps me understand verse 3 a little bit better. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. So you won't hear the sun say, good morning. Nor will you hear the moon say, good evening to you. And yet, they're speaking to us. It's a silent speech. It's a wordless speech that comes to us through creation. And it speaks to us with its own beauty. It speaks to us with its majesty. It speaks to us with its colors and with its warmth. And this language is being heard throughout the whole earth, as verse 4 says. Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world, which means every person around the globe has heard creation speak. All right, so what is creation declaring? Well, we go back to verse 1. Creation is declaring God's glory. 
Creation is speaking about God himself. When the Bible uses this term glory, it has the idea of heavy or weighty. So on the scale of value, if we were just to have like this scale and across the top of it said value across it, you could put all of humanity on there. You could put all of creation on there. You could put any kind of matter on there. But actually, if you put God on the other side, the scale is going to tip heavily towards God because creation is looking not at itself. Creation is looking at God and saying, we are the reflection of who God is. God is weighty. God is glorious. It's about him. So creation is saying, if you think I'm a glorious sunset, if you're amazed at the brilliant blueness of my sky, if you're blown away at the number of me and my starry friends, you really ought to meet the one over here who's waiting. You really ought to meet the one who made it all. And creation is also proclaiming his handiwork. The stars proclaim there is someone who entered into his workshop and made all of us for you to enjoy and be amazed by. They have a voice. Folks, we know from the Bible, which is the authoritative word of God, that creation is not the result of some naturalistic explosion. Creation is the result of God's wisdom. The heavens, the stars are saying, God made us. He fashioned us. He put us in place. All septillion of us plus. And the question is, who could do anything that great? Now, closer to home, we see one particular aspect of God's creation. We feel one particular aspect of God's creation. We're dependent on one particular aspect of God's creation. And this is where David turns in the second part of verse 4, now through four, verse 6. We are dependent on one of those septillion pieces, the sun. So in verse 4, he says this, In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. When you think about the son, David is saying, it's on a glorious journey, like a strong man every day, like a bridegroom that goes out. So in David's day, when a wedding would take place, on the day of the wedding, the man would wake up, he would clean himself up, he would dress himself up. It was his big day. And because everybody else knew that it was his big day, they would come up to his house and the guy would open up the door, and there were a group of people. And this guy would go on a journey across the village. He would go on a journey to his wife-to-be, her house, and pick her up there. So this was the strong and glorious journey that he was able to have, and all the people were excited about it. This is a special day. And then he would pick up his wife, and the ceremony would begin. And David is saying the uniqueness and the specialness of, of that bridegroom coming out for his journey. Let's turn to the sun. Every day is a glorious day. Every day is a strong day. Every day that sun comes up 
and rises for us. And David's point is that God is the one who is making that happen. It's not just in the Old Testament that we see God as the creator of all things. The apostles John and Paul pick up on this as well. John chapter 1, when we're introduced to Jesus himself, the creator, John chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And if you're not familiar with John, John is saying the word is Jesus. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And notice what it says about Jesus, the one who came, the one who lived and dwelt among us. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So, folks, when we come to the Bible here, what we're seeing is that there is a creator behind all matter. And what we know even more specifically is that the Savior who came, the Savior who took on flesh and walked among us, he humbled himself and came down and died on a cross. That same Savior was the one who was making all of this. And he says, I'm going to be your Savior. I'm coming for you. For me, this is an encouragement. It's an encouragement to know that the grand creator is willing to come take on flesh and know me. And not only is it an encouragement that he knows me relationally, but it's also an encouragement that God has used creation to start tapping on the doors of people who do not yet know him. So Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says this, For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power, his eternal power to create and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Let me just encourage you with this truth. One of the hurdles for Christians, I think, is the responsibility of evangelism. And one of the encouragements now that we have here is that when we are sharing Christ with others, God has already been at work through his creation to, as I said earlier, tap on the door of their hearts. Namely, Romans 1 is saying a creator exists. And he's saying that all people can see this. All people can look at creation and know that there are invisible attributes of a being out there who made all these things come into existence. So God is already at work in the hearts of not yet believers, tapping on their hearts saying, I am, I am present. And when God leads you to that person, you can know that he's already been at work so that when you're sharing the gospel with them, it's not just you. It's not just you sharing words. God has already been at work in the deepest parts of that person to show them that he exists and that he is. It's a truth for us to also know that each time we see the beauty of creation, we know that the creator did not stop there. He's created new life for us, as we'll see in a minute. He's created new life for us. 
God creates new life. We become a new creation according to 2 Corinthians 5. And so here we are as believers today saying, this is where I was. I was not yet complete. More work had to be done. God drew me to himself. He opened up my heart to believe in him and he's changed me radically. And now 2 Corinthians 5 says, we're a new creature this morning. He did that work in us. And we say, could he do that? And all we have to do is look at creation and say, he did that, 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 that septillion times. Yes, he can do it in me. And yes, he's continuing to do that in other people. God is speaking to us through creation. He's declaring his glory. And we can enjoy him all the more as we look at creation and see his handiwork on display. Now, in a very abrupt way, David shifts away from God speaking through creation, creation speaking about God. He moves from creation now to more than creation because we need more than creation to know about God. Is there anything that God has given that will radically change our lives that he is speaking through so that we can know him? And the answer is yes. God uses a tool in his work to accomplish more work in our lives. The tool that he uses in verses 7 through 11 is his word. So point number two of the sermon is God's word speaks. Now, we've noticed this in the Psalms. David likes to use different names for God. So notice verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The Hebrew behind that is the word El, just E-L, which means the powerful one, the almighty one, the sovereign one. For the rest of those six verses, God's name isn't mentioned. Now in verse 7, you see he employs a different name, and it's all caps, Lord. This is the name Yahweh. This is his covenant name, his personal relationship name. Now notice how God goes to work in our lives through his word. And if you're taking notes, I'm just going to say there are, there are three columns that you might want to have because we're going to see the Bible described away, an adjective that describes the Bible, and then an outcome. So if you're taking notes, just go across your page. If you're not taking notes, just let this wash over you then. All right, so verse 7. How is the Bible described? Verse 7, it's described as the law of the Lord. For David, this could have meant that the law, uh, the law was the law at Sinai. And if so, it's interesting how he describes the law at Sinai. He does not describe it as burdensome and heavy to him. He describes it as perfect. Now, as we hold our completed Bibles, I think it's right for us to expand that to all of Scripture, not just the Old Covenant law. And in he's, when he says that it is perfect... He's saying that it is flawless in every way. God's word is flawless for us. Now notice what it does. Law of God, perfect, it revives the soul. You think about the paddles from the doctors that they use on somebody whose heart is not beating. That person is not responding. Here's the word of God. It comes into our hearts and it revives the soul. Jeremiah. 
15, verse 16, the prophet said, Your words were found, and I did eat them. And notice the life that comes into him. Your words became to me a joy and a delight. Life started to happen within his soul. The word ultimately points us to Jesus, who is the giver of life. John 10, verses 27 to 28 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. I give them a revived soul. You see, that's what the Word of God does when we open it up day after day and week after week. It points us to the life giver. In our staff meetings on Thursday, Andy is leading us through the book of Acts And we're seeing mainly Peter right now preaching the gospel time and time and time again. And he points people back to Jesus. This is the Jesus who is crucified and risen again. And thousands are coming to life because the word is being proclaimed. As amazing as creation is, folks, we hold something better in our hands. Only the words of scripture have the power that can revive the soul. So if you're here today as a non-Christian, I'm so glad you're here. We are a bunch of imperfect people who can't have life in ourselves. We go back to the word of God, and the word of God says, here is Jesus who came and died for you and who offers his life as a gift to you. He died on the cross for our sins, defeated death three days later, rose again, conquered death, And now he says, come, come, receive the gift of my obedience. I'll give you my obedient life as a gift. And when we receive Jesus as our Savior, we're brought back into a relationship with God. The Spirit indwells us, and we have new life. We're a new creation. It's not just salvation. I think every one of us know what it's like to go through dead times in our lives. It starts with maybe just getting lazy in the spiritual disciplines. We go a few days and all of a sudden we feel like those flowers in the flower garden after they haven't been watered during the heat of summer, they're all wilted up, bending over, and you think, man, those things need something. That's how we feel, dead. We think to ourselves, oh, why is this happening? Well, when was the last time I opened up God's word to receive it? It's been a few days. Or I've neglected assembling together with the church body to receive the word and encourage one another. And then God comes along and it's like rain on our souls. Here's the word of God. Here's the word of God. Here's the word of God. Revives us. That's what the word of God does. Revives our soul. Secondly, the testimony of the Lord. Another name for the word of God. Testimony is a declaration of what is true. The Bible is the testimony of who God truly is. Not only is it the testimony of who God is, but it is the testimony of who we are. And notice what it says about the, the testimony of the Lord. It's sure, meaning that it's trustworthy, it's firm, it's verified. And then notice what it does. It makes wise those who are simple. It gives us wisdom for life. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. You remember Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where he said, everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
Jesus' point is God's word is the source of wisdom. Are you bringing it into your life? Third, God's word, the precepts of the Lord. A precept is an instruction or a rule. You see this in verse 8. The precepts of the Lord, here's the adjective, they're right. And it rejoices the heart. So here's the instruction of the Lord. It's right. And what does it result in? It results in inner joy. So you've seen children who hear their parents' instruction, 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 and you've seen those who receive it, and they go on with their little child life, and they seem to be very content within those boundaries, don't they? At peace, joyful. And then you've seen those children who hear the instruction of their parents, receive it, receive it, receive it, and they say, that's not right for me. They walk away from it. And what characterizes those kiddos? They're miserable little punks, aren't they? You say, wow, you are very discontent. There is a truth that when we receive God's word, the authority, the instruction, the precepts that he has, there's a joy that comes into our hearts. So that's why Jesus could say in John 15, 11, these things, these instructions I have spoken to you, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Receive the word of God into you. Number four, the commandment of the Lord. Clearly some overlap going on with the different names of the Bible here. Commandment has the idea of authority to it. And notice what says here, the commandment of the Lord is pure, it's genuine, and notice what it does. It enlightens the eyes. It helps us see clearly. So Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Do we need to say anything about that in relationship to our world? A world living in absolute confusion and darkness. And let us not go into the world banging people with the light. Let us go into the world like people going into the forest saying, are you lost? I have a light for you. Let's go forward. Fifth, the fear of the Lord. This one doesn't seem to fit the pattern. However, I think that David is saying the word of God brings about a reverence. And he says the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. There's your other column. The result is enduring forever. God's word is clean, it is sinless, it is without fault, it is perfectly acceptable. And because of that, it is timeless. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, the grass withers and the flower fails, falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. There it is. There's the gospel. What is the Bible pointing us to? Continually back to Jesus. Because it's true, God's word will not be lost. It will always last. It's eternal in nature. Then sixth, the rules of the Lord. Some of your versions might say the decisions of the Lord. This has the idea of judgments or verdicts that have been handed down. And what are they? They are true. And notice what they do. They are righteous or making righteous 
all together. So those are six different ways that David is looking at God's word. And now notice what he says in verses 10 and 11. After he sees all of creation, wow, that's amazing. And then he pushes further. After he sees God's word six different ways, notice what he says in verse 10 now. And this is what starts to kind of tug at us. More to be desired are they, the commandments of God, the precepts of God, the instructions of God, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And so what David is stepping back here, he's looking at two particular things, gold and honey. You remember Israel was the land of milk and honey. That was to be the land of prosperity, of good living. And so Honey, think good living over here. David says, we need to come to grips with this, that the word of God is much better for us than, you can remember it this way, money and honey. Than money and prosperous living. Now, I think 95% of us in here would say, amen, and I agree to that, here. But would 95% of us say, yes, I'm dominated by God's word. My affections for God's word just beat out of my chest. And I want God's word in my life more than I want money and more than I want prosperous living. That's kind of where it checks us, doesn't it? Verse 11. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. If you took notes, the outcome, six of those rewards can be in your life. Reviving the soul, rejoices the heart, makes wise the simple. That's God's word for us over and over again. So I think it would be right for us as parents and grandparents to be convinced that the greatest thing that we can give to the generation behind us is not a massive inheritance. The greatest thing that we can give to the generation behind us is this around the table at night. Speaking to our children and our grandchildren saying, This is what God's word has to say. I want you to develop a good work ethic, and I don't want you to be out on the street, so here's a few bucks. But more important than that, we have to sit down and get God's word into our brains and pray that the Spirit drives it down to our hearts. Parents, let me encourage you that Christian school, a youth pastor, is no substitute in your role as a parent to teach your children the word of God so that these six results might be an outcome in their lives. Let me encourage you with hope, not a guilt trip, but with hope. These are the outcomes. Let's teach our kids. I love that wing down there 
where there's just oodles of kids busting out of those doors and walking out of the auditorium halfway through the service here. And then our youth group that gathers together regularly. And we're thankful for the ministries that Jason and Stephen are carrying out on behalf of the church. As parents and grandparents, we're coming alongside of them. We're not saying, here, here's my child, take care of him. Let's be convinced that Deuteronomy 6 applies to us. That when Paul says in Ephesians, fathers, train your kids in the instruction of the Lord. It's for this kind of result, this kind of hope, this kind of outcome. It's God's reward. Not only that, but Stephen and I went and visited three shut-ins this last week. Do you really think shut-ins, when they're in their cinder block rooms, shuffling back and forth from the cafeteria, sitting on the couch in the lobby, maybe taking a walk around the parking lot, are waiting for somebody to come up to them and say, hey, I got your latest balance from the stock market and on your credit union, and here's where you're at on your money and your honey. Not at all. What Doretha wanted most when we went to visit her this last week was we sit down, we talk, I've told you this before, I go to Psalm 23. And I just start reading through Psalm 23, and she starts filling in the blanks. And that's what she enjoys. And then she wants a hymn that's played, coming again. Jesus is coming again. You see, that's what the Word of God is pointing us to. And now here's just an interesting one. i got to watch the time. We went over to visit Wilma, who's in the memory care unit up there off Sternberg. Memory care, all right? She doesn't remember everything. And there's a group of ladies sitting at this table. So we have an audience there. And I say, can I just read Psalm 23 for these ladies talking to the assistant who is there? Absolutely, absolutely. So here are the ladies at this table who don't remember much. But when we get to Psalm 23, it's incredible how God can lock his word into people's hearts. I start going through it. The Lord is, and two or three of them say, my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And just on and on again. Folks, it's the word of God that endures for us. We would be wise to get our priorities right in our hearts. So that someday when we are in those positions, it's the word of God that carries us to the end. Okay, we have to wrap up. Um, looking at verses 12 and 14 is simply a response. And I'm going to move through this. We respond. We respond to the greatness of who God is and, and how he is doing his work. He goes into his, he goes into his workshop with his word in our hearts he does a work in our lives, and we respond. Notice how David articulates this. Verse 11, I didn't read that. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them is great reward. Verse 12, notice how he's, he's on the edge of asking for forgiveness. God, if I've sinned against you, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. There are sins that he knows that he's committed, but he doesn't know what they are. And we're all there because we go through life, we think we're doing fine, and then 10 years later we look back and say, 
whoa, how arrogant and prideful and cocky and foolish was I and sinful was I back then. And so now David is at that point where he's got the maturity to say, I know I didn't see sin then. I know I don't see sin right now. And because of your greatness, God, I'm seeking forgiveness for these errors and these sins. Verse uh, 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. These are the sins that he says, forget it, God. This is what I want to do. We know this was part of his life. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You can study that out later. Aren't you thankful that God is merciful and that our sins are covered under the blood of Jesus? Verse 14. Not only does he want forgiveness, but he wants fellowship here. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart now, God, because of how great you are, and because you know everything, you hear my words, let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's as though he's coming full circle. Let the words of my mouth, remember creation, verse 1, the heavens declare, the heavens have a voice, they speak, and now he's saying, now let me speak that which is acceptable and right in your sight. You are my rock and you are my redeemer. It's a fitting prayer for us as we come to communion today. Because as we look at God's word, it's the message of the Bible that we come to know who Jesus is. He is the rock. He is the redeemer. He is the glorious one. Left to ourselves, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't care what our mouths say. We don't care about what's going around in our hearts. But there's God being rich in mercy, as Andy prayed earlier. He's given us his word. It points us back to our need to be cleansed from our sins. We need a new creation to happen. And so we praise God for the 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. And so here we are as God's new creation, greater than the stars, greater than the sun. Here we are as lights shining in the midst of a dark world, and we want to have fellowship with the creator. And so we can pray, God, let the words of my mouth, let my meditation be acceptable. I want you more than honey and money. Those aren't glorious. You're my rock. You're my redeemer. You are glorious. And so as we come out of Psalm 19, the idea of response to him is, God, you are glorious. Let my life be lived in light of your glory. Let's pray.